belief is as, and isn't. We're going to relook at that definition here in a few moments based on this text. And we've also discussed that every single person in the world, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you're coming from, has faith or belief in something. The caveat there is it might not necessarily be a religious belief. That's typically what we try to associate belief with. But belief in any sense, meaning they have a faith or a hope in something. And we'll look at a couple of those examples on the back end of this. The big idea that we've been trying to apply throughout all of this is to make sure that we have not knowingly or at times unknowingly. I think this is where the Christian arrives most often. We sort of unknowingly arrive at a place in our lives where we trust in something else that isn't Jesus, hoping it will satisfy our souls in a way that only Jesus can. It becomes somewhat of an idol. It, it offers a whole lot to us and delivers nothing. Oftentimes idols take more from us than they give us. And so we want to be very mindful since faith or belief, what we hope in, what we trust in, what we look to for guidance in life, that is a serious thing, and we don't ever want to sort of stumble into that. What we have our faith in, we want to be very mindful of, because it truly dictates the steps of our life. And so with that in mind, today, we're going to look at this last key teaching we derive from Jesus in John 14, as he addresses a group of Galileans who have a questionable faith in him. That's what we talked about last week. This was a group of people, even though they, they warmly received Jesus, we have a bunch of clues in the early part of the Gospel of John, literally, too, from Jesus' mouth, saying that, he did not entrust himself to folks like this because what happened is they believed in the name of Jesus, not because they actually loved Jesus. They believed in the name of Jesus because they heard of who he was and what he had done. Particularly, he was performing miracles in the ancient world. He was helping and aiding people in tremendous ways. And so they fell in love with what they thought he could do, what they thought he could do for them, not necessarily Jesus himself. And the reason this common faith element, this false form of faith, is so questionable is because it's a faith transaction steeped in a trading of services, not a genuine love for the Son of God. They sort of invested in Jesus with the expectation he would do something for them, as opposed to investing in Jesus and recognizing that the real prize of that relationship was that God had sent his Son to earth to be with us and to know us and to help us understand and know God. And so in short, the Galileans wanted to trade an allegiance to God in order to have a God on demand at their disposal. And that's why John, throughout this text, he's pointing out these miracles regularly. He's saying like Jesus was doing all this stuff, and in the middle of all this stuff are these handful of people, this, this Galilean people group, and then this royal official we're going to talk about today. And each one of them gives us a sort of a faith pedigree, one that we want to migrate towards, the one we're talking about today, and one that we want to stay away from. If you've wondered why we spent three weeks in this passage on belief, it's because deeply examining this passage of Scripture is incredibly important on the front end of a series addressing what we believe. We don't want to just assume when we start like what we just sang. Literally, we pretty much just verbally sang the Apostles' Creed. That is the, the sort of declarative statement, the foundational beliefs of the Christian faith. And I did not want to jump into all the stuff we believed without actually understanding and deeply explaining the significance of what it means for us to believe in Jesus as individuals and walk with him together as a community. This is a fascinating case study, this passage of scripture we're looking at, that teaches us some key truths about the kind of faith and belief Jesus desires from us and the type of faith and belief that's going to keep us from experiencing the fullness of God's grace in Jesus. And so all of that, that sort of subtext, what belief is and this story about the Galileans, all of that leads us to this part of the passage we look at today. It's the main point of the faith story that John has recorded for us here. And in it, we're going to see a royal official who's also a father. In fact, we start out seeing that he's a royal official, but the term used most regularly to describe him is that he's a, he's a grieving father. And he approaches Jesus with the same mindset as the Galileans. He starts out in the very same place the Galileans did. And that's why I believe this is a passage of hope. 
because it shows us that even the Galileans, who sort of had a faulty motive in their pursuit of Jesus, there's a, a wonderful way that God can redeem that. If we're willing to look at him and follow him and make some changes, there's a wonderful way God can redeem even something that's not noble so that we can have a true and a pure faith. This person wants something from Jesus, but in the midst of all of this, he develops a genuine faith in Jesus. And this leads me to the next we believe truth that I want to talk about in this series. It's the last one we'll talk about that addresses belief, at least significantly throughout the remainder of the series. And it is still deeply connected to the idea that every person in this world has faith in something. We all look to something for hope, for joy, and for peace. And that is why every single one of us should be mindful of what that faith is in. And that is exactly what we see happening in the life of this father today. So the we believe truth that I want to share with you is a simple one, but a significant one. We believe that the mark of true faith, that's what we're talking about today, is when a person learns to take Jesus at his word. The sort of most significant statement in this whole passage is that this man, this royal official, this father, at some point moves past the actions of the Galileans and takes Jesus at his word. I want to reread this section we're going to look at in detail today. John 4, 46 through 50. It'll be behind me. There was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. And when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, remember, he heard this. He hadn't seen him yet. He went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Jesus responds, unless you people see signs and wonders. Remember, this was the whole premise of our message last week. Everybody's saying, do something for us, Jesus, and we'll believe in you. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. And the man took Jesus at his word and departed. It's a pretty profound passage that deals with a, a very significant human need. And I think the first thing we can see from here is that the interaction between Jesus and this royal official shows us that true faith is often birthed out of a genuine human need. I'm not saying it's the only way that faith develops in our lives, but I'm saying it's a very significant reason. Our, the, the needs of our hearts, the sort of reality of our world, can cause us at times to look beyond this world to somebody who has authority over this world, Jesus. And in many ways, this royal official and father began his conversation with Jesus in the same way the Galileans did. Remember, he's, he's one more person in the crowds that are coming to see him. And he had this major issue going on in his life right now. He is a royal official whose son is at home sick and on the verge of death. So if you're a parent, you already know the sort of the anguish connected to this. And John tells us, no secret here, he wants us to know the status of this man. He's a royal official. He is a person of prominence and power. This is a person who has resources. This is a person who very likely is used to organizing things and calling the shots, an authority figure. Yet once again we see in this passage that life is never a respecter of persons. In fact, it can often be a very cruel teacher. Life deals him a hand where his power and authority have no power and authority. He's got this situation he can't fix on his own. He's ruling something. We don't exactly know what. But he's in a situation where the most powerful become the utterly powerless here. And so think about this. Here's a guy that is driven to Jesus out of raw desperation. And it is very fair to say human suffering. If you've ever lost a child or dealt with somebody that's lost a child or is dealing with a child who's very sick, that is a suffering mantra. It, is a, it taxes every grain of your body, of your life, of your mind, body, and soul. And so it's very clear that he deeply loves his son and he's willing to do anything to see him healed of this unknown illness. We don't know what it is, but we know it's very serious and it's about to take his life. And because his son is close to death, he does what any good parent would have done. 
The text doesn't say this, but if you had a map of the ancient world in front of you, you would know that this guy just walked 25 miles from Capernaum to Galilee to find Jesus because he had heard the incredible stories of what he could do. He didn't walk up the block. This guy traveled like across the country to another city. This would be like you driving or walking, you know, past Ormond Beach here, way past it. That's how far this guy walked to be able to see Jesus. And what we're seeing here is the beginning of a healthy seed of faith that's growing in a person. And somewhat ironically, this seed of faith is planted in the soil of suffering. And if you've ever suffered, you know, suffering often causes us to reach the end of our rope in matters in life, especially in one like this, a significant one. It leads us to a place where we realize that sometimes we have nowhere else to turn but to Jesus. It, it causes us to reevaluate things. Usually the, we get down to the brass tacks of life. And in this case, the brass tacks that's in front of him is Christ. And so as challenging as trial and suffering often are in life, and this is not a message on trial and suffering. Let me just sort of explain that. There are other talks online you can listen to that. I just want to simply use this as the bridge. It's what's driving him. As challenging as trial and suffering often are in life, a passage like this shows us it can truly have redemptive qualities. I'm not saying they're good or that they're great or we want to invite them into our life. Just saying Jesus can lead us down a road that causes us to more deeply depend on him and our Father in heaven. And as a result here, what happens is no, no matter how you approach Jesus when you are suffering, God can do pretty powerful things through that. He can actually grow himself in us. He can provide us peace and joy and hope during circumstances at times where we might feel like we are without them. Now, based on what I just said, I think it's a somewhat natural question that many of you likely have right now. It probably sounds something like this. How is this action, a guy walking a great distance to see Jesus, how is this the beginning of a healthy seed of faith in his heart? Well, this is a really good question, and it sort of serves as the root of how his faith is growing. This sort of idea repeats itself throughout the text, throughout this narrative, and I want to explain to you how it is a faith action. So unlike the Galilean crowds who saw Jesus perform miracles in Jerusalem and then went home and waited for Jesus to come to them, hoping he would perform more miracles for them, remember, that's the subtext of the Galileans. They were with Jesus in Jerusalem. They saw him do all that stuff. They eventually went back to their home city. And then when Jesus came, they showed up to watch him do it again. They had seen and not necessarily believed. Here you've got a guy in a very different place. He's simply heard of the ministry of Jesus. He's heard of his care and love for people. He's heard of what he has done for them. And after hearing alone, he then, without any hard evidence, right? He's not seen him do any of this stuff. Without any hard evidence, without having stood by his side in Jerusalem, frankly, without seeing Jesus. That's a key statement we're going to pick on this morning. He believes that Jesus can do something for his son. So he packed his bags and walked 25 miles to find him. You would not walk 25 miles to see a guy unless you really believed he could do something. And that's what's happening here. There is an element of faith here, a strong one, that without seeing, he believes Jesus can actually do something. He can intervene in this situation. And this is why this father's story is tagged on the end of the Galilean story. It's the incredible measure of hope connected to a very, very faulty motive. It's the beauty of the gospel. It never leaves us on pain and suffering. It never leaves us on sin and death. It leaves us on what Jesus did to deal with those things so that we could have life eternal and abundant in the next life and in this one. And so you have some, some great irony in this narrative. One group sees, the Galileans see Jesus perform signs and wonders, and they have a questionable faith in him at best. While this man sees him do nothing and believes he can actually do something. And the Father's actions are a great example of what faith is, practically speaking. And this is based on the definition we looked at a few weeks ago. I want to just revisit this this morning. Here it is. We said faith sort of foundationally in the New Testament. Faith means this. It is a belief in and a commitment to something or someone. 
In the Christian faith, it is specifically a complete trust in Christ and his work as the basis of one's relationship to God. So when we speak of faith in Christianity, what that means is it's the ability to completely trust. And when I say completely, please understand, I'm saying that with the same bone, marrow, and flesh on my body. We don't perfectly or completely trust Jesus. I'm one of you and you're one of me. We are human, meaning we're striving for this perfect and complete trust. And we're never going to fully have that on this earth. However, faith can grow and develop over time. So what's happening here is the discipline of trusting Jesus more, of trusting him more significantly as our lives develop, that is what faith is. And faith in the Christian faith is looking towards Jesus and trusting in his work. And this type of faith affects every area of life, our head, our hearts, and our hands. It should define our thoughts, it should bring peace to our hearts, and it should shape the very nature of the work that we do in this world. I mean, straight up, if we really believe Jesus has this kind of hope, if we believe Jesus has this kind of authority, then we should be the types of people who are compelled, burdened, to share through word and deed this type of truth with our neighbors in the world, whomever they are and wherever they exist. We should care enough about people to speak the hope of Jesus to them and to labor physically on behalf of the hope of Jesus wherever we can. We should literally be a blessing to others in the way Jesus is to us. That's the root of faith. It's meant to be experienced and shared. So with this in mind, let me share a couple of other verses with you that really get at the heart of what faith looks like in the life of a person. We have a definition and a practical example of this. And I want you to see that this idea, his faith, is not a developed faith yet, but it is a burgeoning faith. It's a, it's a, it's a developing faith, not a developed faith. And that's how faith is for most of us, especially when we tackle new areas of life and following Jesus. We might have a remedial or, or a mediocre trust in him at point at some point in life, but we're trying to grow in that area, whether it's trusting him with our families or our lives or our jobs or for salvation for the very first time. Oftentimes, faith requires us to think a little bit and to process and to explore and to evaluate. And at some point in life, the, the faith meter trips. We actually get to this place where our hope is in the object. We are trying to figure out whether or not we should have faith in. And there's lots of verses in the Bible that talk about faith. I only want to share two of them with you, some biblical definitions of faith. They'll be behind me. Hebrews 11, 1 through 2. Think about this in light of this, this story, this royal official. The author of Hebrews tells us, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. So in Hebrews, which is sort of like a, it's like a cliff note, of all of what happened with Israel, a pretty long cliff note, but nonetheless a cliff note, thus it's a letter to the Hebrews. What, he's, what the author is telling these folks is that, listen, faith is actually this ability to have an assurance or a hope when you can't fully touch what's in front of you. Perfect example in front of this, this, or in this story here, right? He's got a sick son at home, and Jesus is telling him that his son is going to be healed. He's not even there to see him yet. There's a confidence he has to have in Jesus' words. And here what uh, the author of Hebrews tells us is that the ancients were commended for that. Meaning when God looked upon people, this is one of the things he valued most, that they actually had a faith and a trust in him. Hebrews 11. Jesus talks about faith all the time. We're talking about it right here in John. But further on down the road in John 6, and this is just one snippet of a myriad of verses about faith. John 6, 28 through 29, Jesus himself says this in the Gospel of John. Then they asked him, people are always asking him questions, what must we do to do the works God requires? In other words, they're saying, what is it we have to do to follow you? What is it we have to do to, to, to be connected with God, the one you're talking about? And Jesus says, you don't have to like earn your way to God. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't even say you have to do work to be in God. He begins by saying the work of God, in other words, the ultimate work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. 
And so they're saying, what do we do? And Jesus says, before we get to doing, let me talk to you about being. You need to be in me. And to be in me means you have to believe in the one that, the one you're trying to know, God, you have to believe in the one that he sent, me. What a mind bender there, right? Faith is sort of the, the foundation of everything we are in Jesus and everything we aspire to be in Jesus and everything we want to do in Jesus. Connected to that is not a bootstrap theology where we pick ourselves up by our own merits and try to follow God. Connected to this is resting and understanding that our hope and confidence in Jesus is what will ultimately bring all of that about in our lives. In both these instances, we can see that genuine faith isn't a trading of services like the Galileans practiced. It isn't something you can even bring about on your own. Think about this. The royal official cannot fix his son. He has looked to somebody greater than the situation he is dealing with. Faith truly is a deep and profound trust in the one whom God sent to the earth on our behalf. At least Christian faith is. Jesus. And so based on that definition in those verses, we can see this royal official, man, he's got the roots of a genuine faith growing. When without seeing Jesus do anything, he is confident enough to believe he could do something. And he reorients his whole life around Christ. So he made the journey to speak to him about intervening in his dying son's life. And that said, while this is faith, it's still a burgeoning one at best. And Jesus knows that. And the interaction is interesting here when you look at it. Although the father made the faith journey to find Jesus, that's a step of faith for sure. Sort of like Peter getting out of the boat and then falling in the water, right? And we don't always have a perfect faith pedigree following Jesus, but oftentimes we fault Peter because he fell in the water, but he's the one that got out of the boat. I think there's something interesting about that. Faith is burgeoning there. Here we have this same situation. The faith journey to find Jesus, he's talking to him, and he immediately starts asking Jesus very persistently to come back with him. He's saying, can you please heal my son? Will you please come home with me and heal my son? It's sort of a natural response. That's what we would ask. But Jesus will not do that. He doesn't work in the way he wants him to work. In fact, he uses this as an opportunity to sort of rebuke an attitude that I think is where the Galileans ended up. He rebukes him and the crowds, keep in mind, they're watching this event unfold because of this request. So in verse 47, he replies to this persistent, this almost begging of this this man, asking him to come home with him. He then says this, you guys are never going to believe unless you see a sign. And then he denies the request of the father. He says, I'm not going home with you. But he says, go, your son is going to live. Now this is the second, and I actually think it is the most profound display of faith this father shows to Jesus. These are all significant. This is just my opinion here when it comes to his son. In fact, it is the moral of this faith story for this man and us. There are two reasons why this act of faith was a greater display of his trust in Jesus than actually coming to see Jesus was. And that's a pretty big deal, just walking that far to see him. And they both revolve around having the courage to trust Christ's word without seeing what he said he would do. I'll share them briefly with you. The first is this. This guy comes from Capernaum, asks Jesus to come home with him and heal his son. Jesus won't do it. So if the father refuses to leave, in other words, if he says, I'm not walking out of this place until you come with me, that is a clear evidence that he does not have faith in Jesus. He doesn't believe in his word. You know, this would be like me saying, I'm going to pick you up at five, and then you just never leaving, right? We're together, and you're, you're right behind me the whole time. And I would say, like, what are you doing? It's a little bit creepy. You're stalking right here. I don't trust that you're going to come back and get me, right? So if you were right there, that would evidence that you did not believe that I was going to make good on my word. That's what is one of his options here. He could actually get to the place where he doesn't leave Jesus. And I think this would be the most natural result. If you've heard this guy could heal your son and your son was dying, I think it's very fair and human to say we would not want to walk away from this city without this guy that can, that can fix this situation. To, to, to stay here, 
to continue to demand that Jesus work in the way he wants shows that he doesn't trust what Jesus said, not even what he would do, but at this point, what he already said he did. He said, go, your son is healed. Secondly, if he left without Jesus, he would be returning to the dying boy without any assurance he was really going to be healed. It's sort of a lose-lose here. Meaning the act of walking away from Jesus and believing that word was probably the most substantial action this guy took this day. Doing as Jesus said was an incredible step of faith because it meant he had to walk another 25 miles home wondering whether or not Jesus said what he was going to do. Remember, he couldn't T-Mobile himself into his home city and figure out what was going on. There was no phone or internet, none of that. He had to walk a long, dusty road home in the back of his mind, wondering what he was going to see when he walked into his home regarding his son, who was on the verge of dying when he left. There's no turning back here at this point. He can't make this trip again if his son is still ill or even worse, dead. And so truly, all this man had to hang on right now was an idea about Jesus at first. It gets him there, and then he's got to leave hanging on to the word of Jesus. Words from a person he didn't even really know. In a season of life where he desired evidence that his son would be healed. That's why he wants the physical Jesus with him. And I think we do that too sometimes today. We want the physical Jesus with us. We want to see him do immediately whatever it is we want him to do or need him to do. But that's not always the way Jesus works. So Jesus asks this guy, displaying faith in front of this whole crowd of faulty faith followers, he tells him to go home and trust that he made good on the promise that he made. In other words, he says, go, your son will live. Now trust my word. This, my friends, is the beautiful but hard edge that we deal with when it comes to having an ultimate trust and hope in Jesus. It is both beautiful and painful if you've ever heard Jesus speak to you like this. You're looking to the future. You understand that, you know, we have all the words. He's sovereign. He's in control. He loves me. He cares for me. But at the end of the day, you have to take all that stuff and walk. You've got to follow him someplace without, at times, having every concrete detail of what it is you're walking through sorted out. During some of the most difficult times in our lives, we can find ourselves in this same place. All we have to hold on to is the word of Jesus or the words of Jesus. And during those times, there is nothing harder or better to do than to hold on to him and to hold on to his word. And I'll give you an example of this. It's a personal story. If you were here in the very early days of restoration, I share this with you. It was what happened when I became a Christian in 1997. I was incredibly excited about this. I had folks talking to me for a little over a year about this. And, and when I came to faith, I, I didn't realize how substantial that was until I began really growing in my faith. And so I naturally did what the leadership of my church told me to do, and that was to share that experience with people. And so I did. And it was funny watching people react differently to the news. Uh, some were very much for it. Others in my life were very much against it. You know, my parents, if they were here, they would tell you they don't have a super religious background, but they thought I, like, became a part of a cult. That's literally what they thought. Um, that's because I cut a bull up in the kitchen, and they couldn't figure that out. You know, no cult stuff going on there, but they thought this guy's, like, all religious now. And I got all these sort of differing opinions in my life, but what was funny was there were a lot of them. One incident stands out above all the rest. It was, a, I believe, providentially a defining moment. Uh, one of these sort of softballs God tossed at me to be able to understand the roots of faith. And at this time, I was working with a guy who was also a professing Christian. I'd heard him talk about Jesus quite a bit. And I thought rather naively that when I told him about my belief experience, that he would just be happy for me. Like, if you're a guy talking about Jesus all the time, and somebody says, hey, I believe in Jesus, you would think we would be kind of on the same page with that. But we weren't. You know, I shared my story with him, and that is not what happened at all. In fact, he responded in a way that I didn't expect him to at all. And I actually did not know how to respond in that moment. He said to me, that's really great. 
that's the part I understood. He sort of affirmed the decision to follow Christ. But then he went on to ask me, had I, had I spoken in a tongue yet to validate that? Now, let me say this right now. I'm not here to talk for or against tongues. If you want to discuss that, I'm available, preferably after my vacation. We can talk about that all you want. That's not the point of this. This is sort of his version of the sign. That's all that I want to say. The Galileans had their own versions. When we look to God, sort of like the quote we looked at last week, when we say to God, God, unless you do this, I won't believe, we all sort of place a sign before God, and in that moment, we become God. I got a guy telling me, like, unless you do this, I won't believe that God said what he did in your life. And that blew my mind at that point. So this is not about tongues. It's just part of the story. I was really confused about the nature of this question, and, and I tried to get him to explain it because I wanted to understand what he was saying. I just made this decision, and then I was being told by somebody that it was questionable whether or not I made a decision. So he went on to tell me that believing in Christ was a good thing, but to see a real faith in Jesus, he told me, it had to be proved by giving him a sign. And this sign for him was I needed to speak in a tongue. And so super confused about that, called into question everything I believed about God at that moment, and because this guy was telling me I didn't have real faith, because there hadn't been a sign, because I, I thought the sign was taking Jesus at his word, that's what I told him briefly, trusting him for who he says he is, believing he died for my sin, that was the sign. But he told me something different. And so that conversation caused a very serious faith crisis for me, at the very beginning of my faith. And it sent me on a quest to figure out what faith really was. Now, I wasn't even in school at that point. I just felt like we're talking about faith. I say I have it now, and I want to understand more deeply what it is and isn't. And so I did what we encourage. In fact, this perhaps might be a very great sub-example of what we're talking about now, the idea of we believe. I went to the Bible, and, and I spoke to very close Christian friends of mine to help me sort that out. In other words, I wanted to know the truth of God, and I needed people to help me figure that out. It was a conclusion that we came to that was a little more natural as far as the fitting the teaching of the Bible, and it aligned more with the historical understanding of how the Christian community has understood faith. And if you study scripture, you know faith, the declaration of our faith is in Jesus alone. That is the sign of faith. That is the mark of faith. It's the, the most substantial sort of decision we can make that births faith in our lives. And so I left that conversation, at least after some study and prayer, thinking differently. And if we're being honest, we likely all have stories like this in our lives. Moments where things we have believed in our faith, maybe for the first time or for a very long time, they're challenged. These are moments where what we say we believe, it's run through the crucible of life. And life can often be very difficult. So it's in these moments that I want to say this. We look at the royal official. It's in these moments that God can do some of his best work. When the trial comes, when the suffering is there, when the doubt is present, it's in these moments that God can really do things that prove he's God, that show us he's God. I went to God with a big question about faith, and he answered it. And I was forever changed by that. Because I really believe if we are seeking him in those moments, God's going to reveal himself to us. Whatever that moment is, God desires for us to know him. Think about this. The story of the Bible is God in ever-increasing ways revealing himself to us. In the daily moments of life, the big stuff, the small stuff, ultimately climaxing in Jesus. The story of God in the Old Testament, the story of God in Jesus, and what follows after Jesus is on the earth. All of this is showing us God is a God that wants to be known. And God is a God that wants to know us. In other words, God isn't trying to hide himself from you. He didn't put Jesus on the earth and then run away from us. He put Jesus on the earth so that the message of the gospel that he birthed on earth would go to the nations for the rest of the days we have on earth and the form we have it now. God wants to be known by you and I. And that's true for the first time and true as we, know, true as we grow in him. He wants, to be, he wants us to know him more deeply. And he already knows us immeasurably deep. There are times, though, in this pursuit when the way we believe 
what we do not believe or if we're believing something faulty like the Galileans. They're missing this side of Jesus. They're seeing God do stuff without actually seeing God. The royal official, though, this is a change. He's seeing God do stuff. Now he's hearing Jesus talk and he's about to actually see God through this. What a different perspective on a sign or the words of Jesus leading us to faith as opposed to people literally seeing Jesus do things and still choosing not to believe like the Pharisees. We talked about them last week. And all of this comes through this this trial. This is the faith challenge set before the Father in this passage. He's got a very serious decision to make. Do I take Jesus at his word or do I trust in something else for the fate of my son? Those are his two options. Do I do what I think I can do? A man of power and prestige, essentially a politician. He's got a lot of resources at his disposal. Do I continue to trust in my own way or do I take Jesus at his word and trust him for the life of my son? And so Jesus does what he does. He stretches his faith a bit and he makes it a lot stronger. And we know that because at the end of this passage, John tells us this man believed Like, he didn't just believe his son was alive. He believed now that Jesus was God, and so did his family. That event changed them all. And if we will permit Jesus to work in our lives, he will often do the same for us. He will change us in new and in meaningful ways. He will recreate us and sort of reform us into his image. And so this father's actions, unlike the spurious crowds that came to Christ wanting something out of him, they show us that true faith means Jesus actually will desire something from us. He wants our trust and our hope to continually grow in him. What he wants is our confidence to be put in him. And there are times, not always, but there are times when life trial, this is what's happening here, is the most effective tool God can use to redeem and deepen our faith in him. It's a story, if you will, of suffering that actually leads this man to take Jesus at his word. And there's like life abundant and eternal now in his family. It's a pretty profound reality. In his quest for physical life, Jesus shows him eternal life. That's what God can do. And his actions really show us sort of a a simple idea with very profound sort of complexities in how we try to apply it. True faith doesn't demand evidence. It always displays itself by the ability to trust Jesus' word. Evidence would have said, come with me, Christ, then I'll believe you. All this guy had was his word. He had to go home believing that what Jesus said he was going to do, Jesus had the authority to do it. And so if you think about this, the royal official comes to Christ standing at the bottom rung of the faith ladder. It can't get much lower than this. He starts, he's a crowd seeker, and he comes like the crowds, yet he leaves believing Jesus' word enough to know, or at least to, to believe that he can do what he says. And what I love about the Bible is this. You know, we can read this whole interaction. We have no concept of how long this took. We just know it was 25 miles there. However long he was talking to Jesus, who knows if he even had to wait in lines to speak to Jesus. We have no sort of chronology on how long the event was, like the, the waiting through the crowds and getting to Jesus, and then his walk back. It's fair to say this was at least a couple of days. Like, I mean, that's the best case scenario, a couple of days. We read through this like, oh, this guy's son got healed, and then he believed. Awesome. Then we go out and eat lunch. That's what happens in this room. It takes us 30 seconds to read through this whole narrative to find out what happens, the good stuff at the back end of this. But this father had, try to put yourself in his shoes emotionally. He had a 25-mile journey back home to find out what had happened. And I think it's pretty fair to say this was probably the longest walk this guy ever took in his life. Every step he was closer to either seeing his son alive or his son dead. What a measure of faith to be able to leave and see, to go see what Jesus had done or said he did. And so you see, taking Jesus at his word, this is what births faith. 
He is seeing God be who God says he is, faithful, true, honest, reliable. And later on, we find out the whole family comes to believe. This is a theme that grows all throughout the Gospel of John. And it's why at the end, if you think about this is the beginning, essentially, of Jesus' ministry here. He's right on the front end of it. But we see him ramp up this language. We've talked about it in John 6, and it's replete through the whole Gospel of John. It's literally one of the last things he says to us on earth after his death and before his resurrection. In John 20, 29, think of this statement in light of what we just read. I did a whole sermon on this text around Easter time. But briefly, Jesus told Thomas, remember doubting Thomas? Because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Think about this statement in light of that story. you got a guy named Thomas following Jesus and still needs to put the, the finger in his hand to believe he's real. Having heard all that he's done. Faith can be tricky sometimes. But Jesus seems to commend him for this type of faith. The same type of faith the ancients had, where they had a hope and a confidence and, and a belief in the work and the nature and the person of God without having to have actually seen the work and the nature and the person of God. And so in every way, this story, it's a beautiful picture of what happens when you learn to trust Jesus' word. It's truly a story that begins with doubt and concern and questioning and probably even some skepticism. This father approaches Jesus as a crowd seeker, and he's got a very anxious heart. But he leaves Jesus, trusting that Jesus' way is the best way, even when he does not fully understand that way in the moment. And this is what true faith is. It's what it looks like. At least this is a very practical expression of it. We often have to trust Jesus' good word without fully understanding everything he's doing. And so as we wrap up this, this first section of this We Believe series, which largely deals with what belief and faith is, and how we balance our individual faith in Jesus with our corporate identity in the church family, I want to leave you with this, these sort of closing ideas. There are many things you and I can choose to place our faith in in this world. But out of all of them, this is especially true when we look at the charge of atheism, which sort of implies that there's an ignorance in faith. I just want to argue concretely. You can listen to the sermon two weeks ago about atheism. I want to argue concretely that taking a step of faith, having a hope in Jesus is not a is not a measure in ignorance. It's actually probably the smartest thing you can do. It's the most sensible thing that you can do. It's the most realistic thing you can place your faith in. And here are some of the reasons why. Let's just look at some of the common faith sort of roads people walk down in. We can believe in no God. That's certainly an option. That is the charge of atheism. But if you really run that to its final end, which is why I quote Christopher Hitchens, because he's one of the, the few atheists that actually do, life gets very insignificant. I mean, best case scenario, based on modern medicine, you and I get about 80 years. That's sort of what the average, give or take a little bit, is right now in America. We get 80 years on this earth, and that's it. I mean, what a, what a cosmic reduction of humanity, if that's it, okay? That's where that leads. We can place our faith in the sciences alone. Caveat, really respect the sciences here. I actually read a lot of them and believe in a great element of it, really trust a lot of it. So this is not like a faith-first religion issue, or excuse me, a faith-first science issue. I always say when it comes to the disciplines of faith and science, each one is addressing the significant questions the world is asking, but each one of them has, each one of them is a discipline that doesn't address the other one. And so with faith and science, think about this. If you're a science head alone, that answers your questions, some of them anyways, about the mechanics of life, but science is not at all concerned with meaning and significance and purpose, that's not what science is talking about. It's trying to understand the, the, the way life came about, where the discipline of faith is actually trying to help us understand the reasons for why life has come about. 
The reason why we are human, what makes us human. That's a, that's a dead-end road. I can have faith in a political or an economic system. Read Twitter today, and you'll probably not ever want to do that again, right? Our country today is more split than it's ever been in my lifetime. I'm not affirming one way or another here. I'm just saying it's a pretty divisive time in America right now. That's a roller coaster. Politics or economics. We should pray for our, our leaders. We should pray for the state of the global world economically. But to ultimately put everything you got in that, 2009 showed us what happens when you trust in the economy, right? Be smart about it, but don't put your ultimate hope in it. Then there's the highly popular way of believing in myself, that there is no one in the world I can trust in the world besides me. So I place my faith in me. This is essentially the root of all atheism. And let's be honest, on our best days, we all have the capacity to fail ourselves and let ourselves down. That doesn't mean we're bad or terrible people. I'm just saying we cannot deliver on that promise. None of us is able to carry the, the woes of the world on our backs perfectly. And so I say this to say none of these things in and of themselves are necessarily bad. I mean, I guess, you know, denying Jesus outright is not the greatest thing on earth. But none of these things, science or looking to economic systems or politics, I don't want to say we should disengage from these things. I just want to say, is that where we want to throw all of our dice? There's another option. We can look at those things through the lens of Jesus, who transcends them all. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is sovereign. He holds the universe intact with the power of his word. He just gave this guy his word and delivered good on it. He embodies truth and goodness and, and righteousness, and he loves us deeply, so much so that he died for us. And so if I'm going to use my brain, if I'm going to use sort of my, my faculties to determine what faith should sort of dictate every other decision I make in life, then it makes sense that this man right here is where it would be. Because faith in Jesus helps you to overcome and endure the difficulties in every single thing that I just mentioned. And if you've lived on this earth for more than like three years, you have dealt with issues in every single one of these areas. It's just the nature of the world that we live in. And so in closing, this faith story chronicles that Jesus te teaches us about faith. It's really the, one of the best passages, I think, in the whole New Testament. And what we learn here is applicable to all of us today. We see a man who approaches Jesus with a weak faith and out of desperation, right? With each passing moment through a difficult life circumstance, his faith deepens to the point of it being a genuine belief in Christ. It ends with an affirmation of Jesus being Jesus. It's a belief that through stages and increments, it took Jesus at his word, moment by moment, eventually trusting his ultimate word, that he was the son of God. And that is the kind of faith Jesus wants us to have in him. And there's a ton of grace from him when it is not, even if our story doesn't end up this way, maybe we end up at the place of disbelief. I just want you to know your God is a big God and he's able to handle your doubt and your skepticism. But bring it to him, bring it to his word, and certainly bring it to people that you trust and people that care for you. And so remember, whatever you place your faith in, it's important to know every one of us is looking at something right now. Every person has placed faith in something. And so today I ask you to examine what your faith is in, possibly to consider if it needs to be placed in Christ for the first time. Maybe you already have faith in Jesus, but it needs to be deepened. You, you know, maybe you're at stage one of this guy's faith journey, but you need to take a walk with him somewhere to believe a little more deeply. Or maybe it's time, you know, maybe through this, this hour or the, the hours you'll have thinking and praying about this text throughout the week, I encourage you to do that. Maybe you're going to find that you need to completely place your faith in something different. It's time to change your answer. Whatever your faith is in, it is not the right thing. Wherever you find yourself today, know that God is a good God and he wants you to see him. And so as we move into our response time, ask yourself, what is it Jesus is saying to you about faith? What is he saying to you about faith in your life? And what is it that you will do about your faith in this very moment and when you leave this place?